0: And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, we jump into the way, way back machine, to a time before craft beer was even a thing. We go back to when you could write a book that took beer much more seriously than most books did at the time, but could still categorise beer as session beers, premium beers, or weirdo beers, weirdo beers being Belgian beers. I speak, of course, with Ben Canada who together with fellow wine writer Greg Duncan Powell wrote a book called Slab Stubbies in Six Packs, A Tasting Guide. If you're someone who's rediscovered beer in the last decade, or perhaps turned 18 in that time, you've been spoiled in a way by the abundance of information coming at you from every quarter. This book was published before blogs were even a thing. Remember them? Let alone social media or any of the other vectors that throw beer information at you on a daily basis. Printed newspapers were on their deathbed, not that they really covered beer anyway. And as a, well, younger beer writer, aspiring beer writer, along came this book which both served to an extent as a catalogue of what was then available. Imagine being able to catalogue all of the beers in a narrow book these days. But it also looked at beers in a way that looked sideways at marketing, viewed PR with contempt and still described beer in an immediately relatable way. That didn't speak down to you, but still elevated beer. It was a book that was incredibly influential on me. I hadn't spoken to Ben for well over a decade, but when I came across the book on my shelves recently, I wondered what he would make of the world that we inhabit now. Had we not been in lockdowns, I might simply have caught up with him when I was next in Melbourne for a beer. Because I really don't know how interested our regular audience is in this chat, because I don't know whether you've seen the book. It is quite a personal indulgence, and I apologise for that. But I found it an interesting chat, and I hope you do too. This is Ben Canada. Ben Canada, welcome to Beer as a Conversation.
1: Thank you very much. Nice to be invited.
0: Your book, um, Slabs, Stubbies and Six Packs, was probably one of the most influential books I read uh, in my uh, beer writing career.
1: Oh, well, I'm delighted to hear that it has um, finally achieve some purpose
0: that's good news well and and we'll get to that but as as we always do um for those who maybe you know came along to craft beer um more recently and i do note that the term craft beer isn't used in your book uh as because it's celebrating its 21st birthday this year
1: yeah that'd be about
0: right yeah but how, how did you come to uh you know be in a position to be approached to write a beer book 21 years ago
1: Oh, the happy times. Um, (laughs) Greg Duncan Powell and I had um, met on a wine junket and um, we'd had a good dinner at the the Posh Hotel in in Adelaide and we were staying there and in the lift on the way back upstairs to our rooms, I said to him, "Um, have you ever thought about writing a wine book? And he said, no. Because Greg, you know, Greg had a and still has, you know, a really strong emphasis on way of life rather than, you know, working for the man. And I said, well, what if I did one with you? And he said, okay. And that worked out really well, and that was called Drink, Drank, Drunk, and we had a good time with that. And um, when we were writing that book, um, at the end of the day, we'd have a beer because you know you were so over wine after all the tastings, and we thought. This is something that maybe, you know, could be a good extension of the franchise, as it were. Um, we mentioned it foolishly to our publishers and they left the idea and um, were very kind to us to let us do it in our way. Um, so we came up with the different categories and thought it was a good chance to perhaps write a, you know, a small but useful volume about beer in Australia at a time where um beer was perhaps changing um what i realize now 20 years later is that it, w- it was actually like a survey history of australian beer drinking traditions of the time and that's been the most interesting thing for me to um contemplate over the last day or two since you um were so kind enough to give me a call
0: we might even go a little bit further back uh, in, in the way back machine how did you get into being a wine writer? When you left school, like was it uh, a, a journalism career that you embarked on, or how, how did you come to even be? Were you just an enthusiast that loved to browbeat your friends with what they should be drinking?
1: Yeah, probably. I'm I'm Aries, so I know everything before <laughs> other people do. Um, no, I'm. I finished university and I was unemployable, and um, as a result of that, I you know cooked for myself and took an interest in wine and. And did force my friends to take my wine courses and then it grew a little bit. And one of the blokes that did the, and I did them a few times, And one of the guys that came along, a friend of a friend, worked at the Melbourne Age. um, And after the course, um, said to me, you should think about, you know, doing a bit more with this. And he um, put me in touch with an editor and I submitted something and the editor submitted it to a, a then nascent wine writing Award, and I was, I was silly enough to pick up the phone when it rang, and I'd won the damn thing. So, um, as I said, none of it was my fault.
0: I mean, that in itself um, it, it potentially ex- explains a lot because if you go back to the 90s, 2000, you know, very early 2000s, when you were obviously embarking on this wine. In Australia, was all about taking yourself far too seriously and ele- over elevating um, the knowledge of the expert, and it became terrifying for many uh, wine drinkers that you know you always had there was always someone at the table who was the arbiter of what was good, and so everyone would pass the wine list down to let them decide uh, what everyone was going to be drinking because you couldn't drink what you liked; you had to drink what was passed fit by the expert um, and. Your approach to writing about wine and beer always seemed to be a little bit separate to that, you know, where it didn't take... Uh, some of the language was beautiful and descriptive, but it never took itself too seriously and was very approachable. Um, you know, if, if I could t- describe my um, impressions of, of of your writing. Where did that... You know, it, do you accept that and, you know, where did that come from?
1: Oh, it's very flattering of you to say so. Matt, um, perhaps it's true... Um. Greg Duncan Powell and I, I, I guess, had one thing in common. We were, you know, very small L liberals. Um, I'm probably more conservative than Greg is. He's more progressive. But uh, we like the idea of um, the notion of a democracy in all forms of um, social life. And, you know, in its, in its artistic and cultural forms, one of which is food and wine. Let's face it, um, try to tell a Frenchman that food is not a form of art. Um, but yeah, we so we, we took that as a sort of never discussed, but somehow strangely understood premise. And so we, um, we certainly didn't try to write in a purposeful way in that regard. It just came very naturally to us. Um, and we were lucky because um, whilst we weren't born to wine, um, at least our families had wine around them. Um, And I think in that sense, it seemed more natural. Um, And also at the time, I think there's a slow cultural and social evolution about um, um, not so much understanding, but just being happy about drinking alcoholic beverages is a normal part of your daily routine. Um, And I think that's, the interestingly enough, the great divide now between where wine in Australia has gone and where beer in Australia has gone. And I I think that needs a bit more discussion.
0: Well, discuss away. I'm I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Um, Well, I I
1: can't help but think that... um, Well, the key date for me in this regard is 1975. And you go back to um, early um, Bureau of Statistics data and, you you know, it's literally pencil on, you know, graph paper. So it's pretty shady and hazy. But 1975 was when... Australians bought and consumed more coffee than they did tea and that for me is the tipping point where we thought we were probably more European than we were English and it's interesting that then by the 1980s, early 80s wine had become a thing. Um, In the mid-80s you've got a politician like Neville Rann admitting in public and in the media that uh, after work he enjoyed drinking Chardonnay so Things had really, really changed. Um, so wine evolved really quickly. Um, we used to have wine and make wine and drink wine um, in mimicry, uh, at best perhaps as an homage to the French styles. So Hunter River Burgundy, um, reasoning was called Moselle. Um, Australia's, <clears throat> the appalling misuse of this term, iconic. <laughs> um, Shiraz, because um, it's, well, perhaps it is a religious figure, Um, Grange Hermitage, Uh, they've dropped the Hermitage now because of European laws about naming, but um, once again that's an example of how we use the names of these things in mimicry of the French. Wine has evolved, so now wine in Australia has a sense of its own place, it's very vineyard specific, people talk about the soil, people talk about certainly about the grapes but how they grow it, Um, and I think that's evolved. Unfortunately with beer and I hasten to add, I leave out the slowly growing number of home brewers in this country, which you must remember, as all your listeners and you know that you know, until Gough Whitlam came along, we're criminals. Those home brewers—they're doing a wonderful job. But beer in Australia is changing, but it's not evolving. Beer's not doing what winers has, has done over the last 30 or 40 years.
0: How do you, how do you mean? Because there would be people that were arguing that beer has come on long leaps and bounds.
1: It has in terms of representation. It used to be really parochial. Um, there, in the last decade, um, for instance, um, small um, craft beer and independent um, breweries have, um, I think, doubled, which is really good news there are certainly more more brands there's been a a great interest in the manufacture of different beer styles so that's yes that's a tick that's an improvement but I I don't think beer in this country has um set its own sense of place yet I think it's still mimicry, um and I think that's the thing it's got to get over um here's a good example of that I guess um you can go to North Rhine, West Valia, or you can go to Holland in the summer and you just drink wheat beer because that's, you know, it's hot and it's low in alcohol and it's refreshing and you often have lemon in it and that sort of stuff, right? Maybe that's a little bit more modern, but um, um, we're here in Australia, we're trying to make all the styles drink all around the year. Um, we sort of haven't tried to work out what might suit our different climates, um, different seasons, um, and our eating habits. And I think so. There's still a little bit of work to go there. Um, I hope that um, brewers start, perhaps more to lead
0: than to follow. Funnily enough, um, yeah, that's a criticism I have, and even um, you know, regionally, you know, Brisbane, where I'm from people are so taken with Melbourne's laneways that they're trying to build laneways here to capture a little bit of that, despite the climate being vastly, vastly different um, and the evolution of the, 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 the space being different. Um,
1: well, once again, that's, I think that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that does reflect my point about mimicry. Um, mimicry is the basis form. You get to homage a, a and that's slightly grander. And then I think you're revolving and progressing and then, culturally with in terms of food and drink and alcoholic beverages you move on you develop your own style i guess you know we also have to remember too we've um you know we're recent transplants to this country so what
0: does it really yeah. mean it, but, exactly but i guess look, looking at uh, slab stubbies and six packs we can come back in a little bit and talk about the evolution of wine as well but when i flick through the chapters As you said, it it does reflect that sliver of time that it was written because the chapters were, chapter one, sessional beers, chapter two, premium beers, chapter three, boutique beers, that you would have people in the beer industry harangue you for using that term these days, even though I think it's actually the perfect term. Um, Heavy beers, light beers, and weirdo beers. And weirdo beers include such beers as... um, See, there's his Maxim that doesn't exist anymore, uh, Southwark Pale, um, Schofferhoffer, you know, Pilsner or Kell. Uh, so it, it, it's just interesting how 21 years ago the beers were categorised.
1: Well, as we saw it, yeah. Um, mm. And it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I, after all that time, I, I don't see that as an unfair representation of what was going on then. And strangely enough, I don't think it's an unfair of representation <laughs> of what's happening now. Which is um which is um, enjoyable to realize but also a little bit pitiable in mind
0: <laughs> well, craft so boutique beers, and uh, I'll just again without reading huge tracks of your book into uh, into the record. Boutique beers are characterful beers that are created in small volumes. They sit somewhere between homebrew and mega multinational beer. Conglomerates are a pretty good place to be. Uh, They're like independently produced records. They're not for every taste, but they do have a taste. It's a taste that has its own personality, whether you like that personality or not. You know, again, since that description, we've tried to define what craft is. Um, And, you know, craft was brewing in a more purer way unlike the big brewers which didn't last very long and then independence you know i still think that boutique captures that indefinable um you see it when you you know it when you see it
1: yeah i guess if i guess if you're going to use a euphemism which we all understand is the most dangerous form of language um you might as well make it fairly opaque um and that's why it's interesting craft beer now um the use of that term has become more or less cemented in place but um um I was looking at um, um, Ibis data the other day, and, you know, the the number of craft beers or businesses in Australia, it's an $807 million a year business. 550-plus um, businesses are defined by the data collection sources as being craft, but um, quite a majority of them are owned by Lyon or Asahi or... Um, other companies. So um, um, can you be a, a bespoke artisan if, you know, all your backing is coming from a multinational?
0: Well, perhaps, perhaps. But, you know, then uh, something that I'm grappling with just this week, uh, tomorrow, um, which will be last week when this goes live, Wood are announcing a clear bottled 3.5% contemporary lager going after the great northern drinker. Um and on one hand, you know that's a, a capitulation from the flavour-forward that craft beer promised to be 15 years ago, um, and it's a recognition that not everyone wants fruity, hop-driven uh, or cloudy beers, and some people just want something that's unfussy. And if uh, craft- yeah, well,
1: well, yeah, I think this once again, I'm, I'm afraid to say, establishes um, the point I made earlier that um, we've we're trying to copy things rather than do things like. Um, why on earth in far north Queensland, for instance, or the Northern Territory, um, would anyone be making um, stout? (laughs) Um, I I don't quite get that. Um, We had, Greg duncan Carr and I had, you know, some sort of funny worries about that when we wrote that book, that um, there was the the emerging boutique stuff that was basically porridge. You could stand a spoon in it and there was too much hops, you know, you tasted like sucking on a galvanized roofing nail.
0: Got it. Um, what, what do you think of some of the beers that look like mango juice these days?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 it's a broad church, um, <laughs> but that's fine. Like if you know, if you're in um, Ireland or Scotland in the middle of winter, you know, a, a red, a red porter, um, Guinness style, um, that sort of black beer is fantastic. But if it's you know 40 degrees and 99 percent humidity lager is um something that's required um strangely enough you know it comes from a very different part of the world but um it's good to see that lager has returned to beer drinking habits in this country um and it's also good to see that whilst imported beers remain well they're imported and not imported and i'm sure you and all your listeners know what i mean like Mm. they're made under license here but Um, Some of those other styles of beers are more embraced, Um, whether it's a reflection of pomposity or whether it's a reflection of a search for quality. um, Beer in bottles now is nearly 60 plus percent of a beer in tins. Um, So there there are some things that are changing for the good and particularly um, the best news I've heard about beer this year was um, the – Return of Cascade's um, first harvest, their green, fresh, hot beer that was first made in the early
0: 2000s, and on and very limited release in Tasmania, unfortunately. Um, but but that's as it should be. Mm. You know, that's if if you want to drink a really fantastic
1: Pilsner-style beer, you know, you go to Prague, you go to Czechoslovakia. Um, you know, you why do you expect? You know, if you want to have, you know, a birch ham. You go to Spain. This is the sort of thing about it. You know, if you want, if you want the real McCoy Castle, you go to Castle Norte in the south of France. You, so you do. You seek these things out. Not that anyone can travel anymore. But um, so to replicate them and mimic them, I think, is in a way a kind of admission of failure. You should find something that's more acutely keen to your sense of place, your climate and your season and work from there.
0: Ironically, that's what I think Stone and Wood did um, back in 2008 when they were launching. They took the new Hop Galaxy Hop um, that had that yep. lovely passion fruit, created right when everyone else was in a bitterness, you know, arms race to see who could make the most bitter beer. They just created a, you know, 20 IBU um, summer ale made with Australian hops. Yeah. Uh, but as, as we've seen, now so has everybody else. <laughs> so, and that... Then- well, that's
1: that's encouraging in one sense. Most um, other people might be mim- mimicking them. Um, it might lead to uh, more worth. you know, the law of unintended consequences. It might lead to something that's, um, you know, more useful for beer drinkers.
0: Just to go back to the introduction of your book, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but uh, you you also say, yet in a nation with a strong tradition of beer drinking... There is little or no information about beer, how it is produced, the ingredients that go into it, the style in which it is made, or how it should taste. These problems probably exist because beer drinkers go for the kind of train spotting that wine tossers do. Yet in a strange way, this sort of navel gazing allows and encourages quality evaluation. It can help separate the good from the bad, a dog from a diamond. Beer education has gone on um, over the last 20 years, you know, again with um, books like yours kicking, kicking it off um, for people like me. Do, do, do you see some of the discussions that take place online? And, you know, has beer become a little wine like in the fussiness of the over description? Or do you think that, you know, all education is good or all interest is good?
1: No, I don't think it's become um, over fussy at all. Um, I think what separates most discussion and education and the sharing knowledge around beer, particularly with homebrewers, is their. Um, incredibly um, strong fixation with um, the technical Um, and that's really good um, as opposed to um, a lot of wine talk, which is more about evaluation and analysis of um, perceived smells and flavours and comparisons to other wines and other vintages. Um, No, I I find uh, popular beer commentary um, to be increasingly more about the scientific and technical side, which I think is a wonderful thing. And you look once again at um, home brewing. In the last decade, you know its annual growth is something around about three percent. Um, it's still, um, you know, we wouldn't be allowed to say this on the ABC. The average home brewer is still like a 39 year old man. Um, and they're mostly still brewing out of you know 20 litre plastic fermenters. No problems there. You know, that's the way I did it, and that's how I made my first wine until it exploded because I'd <laughs> overfilled. I'd overfilled the beer tank with too many grenache grapes. Um, and more importantly, on that point, I think too is that from when I made my first kit beer, um, you know, out of the tin, everyone knows that one. Um, now, more and more homebrewers are using whole grain. Um, dried hops are still um, the thing to do, but, um, you know, hop extract and liquid hops are used less and less. There's less dextrose used in home brewing now, which is fantastic. Um, so you actually get lower-strength beer that's more delicious and doesn't have that soapy, clingy taste that you get when you add too many of those sugars. Um, so, you know, if... If I compare what homebrewers are doing now to what middle-aged 39-year-old something men were doing a decade ago when they all discovered that they could make their own sourdough bread, maybe homebrewers could be the salvation of beer in this country.
0: Coincidentally, you you mentioned 1975 as when uh, coffee became more popular than tea. That was also, I believe, the year that uh, the Whitlam government legalised homebrewing.
1: It might have been if you had, if you asked me, I might have said a little earlier. But it, yes, four. 74, let's let's 74, agree.
0: 75 Certainly. A, a yeah. Let's up. agree on that. Yeah. Mm.
1: yeah. Let's agree. But that that That's was just one of those stupid, you know, um, bureaucratic oversights. So it was just something that needed to be changed.
0: Do you still keep a, a close eye on because you're you're Melbourne uh, based? Do you still keep an eye on what's happening down there? And do you have any favourite breweries who you really like what they're doing locally?
1: No, not particularly, not at the moment, um, with short-term memory on the way out um, <laughs> and the last 18 months um, being like yesterday. Um, no, but certainly around Melbourne, and this has been, I think, um, another important trend, um, with the establishment of more small local breweries, it's been great to see local restaurants, local cafes when they've had the chance to be open using that notion of, right, there's a there's a brewery around the corner two kilometres away or further up the street. We'll supply their beer, just like we'll get the bread from the guy up the road, we'll get the beer. And, you know, people do. I've seen it in places like St Kilda and Elstonwick and Balaclava um, that I'm more f- familiar with um, where people are doing that, where it's um, a sense of um, what's that dreadfully vulgar term, um, the locavore <laughs> mentality um, where you use what's um, just around the corner. I think that makes great sense with beer um, because then it's it's become symbiotic. You support them, they support you, and it's a, a nice way to do things. Um, still got to, I guess, balance that with the fact that, uh, you know, big company, just staple, manufactured beers is still the majority of things that people drink um, Heineken is considered, you know, the posher spear in Australia at the moment, according to April data from Statista, Um, and yet um, Carlton Draft is considered the greatest value for money, according to the same
0: data. Um, So,
1: does the data lie?
0: talk about the, the the language of beer um, because again you, you were writing and this goes back to the education piece you were writing in the early days of uh, beers like little creatures um, coming out um and i i can't remember when i last wrote a beer review because it's so hard not to just parrot the same descriptions for piney resiny you know malt backbone you know toffee that uh could describe just about any beer. Um, but yeah, there's still something when I pick up the book. Um, now, th- th- This is the description of Little Creatures Pale Ale. There's something about cloudy, richly golden beers that seem healthy and organic and a little a bit suspicious. All at the same time. But this is no rustic homebrew. It's fresh and exotic. Smells of rosewater, geraniums and citrus peel. Reminds us more of aromatic white wines than they do of beer. But there's nothing puffy about this beer's palate. It's as bitter as a mouthful of galvanised nails. Um, it needs food. And you know, there's just still something about that that uh, I wouldn't read that anywhere else. But I know immediately what I'm, uh, what I'm tasting um, just when I read about it. Where did you develop your vocabulary for beer styles or for, for flavour terms?
1: Perhaps just before I um, address that, um, <laughs> we we certainly wouldn't get away with the magic too no. Puffy yes. today. Um,
0: I was going to cancel you, but I was, I was, I was going to remark on that, yes. Yeah.
1: Um, Greg and I um, approached beer just as we approached wine, and um, I don't think um, there's any problem with that at all. Indeed, the nomenclature of beer is... Um, in many ways very similar to wine because you do have aromatics um, so the primary smells. You do have bouquet and they're the secondary smells that the smells that come from artifice from either making or from beer brewing. So they're two easily classified areas of smells. You do have texture, you do have body, you do have acidity. Um, certainly with hops you've got something very similar in wine with tannin or phenolics in white wine. So you've got that texture and grip, and you've, you've got an overall sense of the way the wine moves or the beer moves through your mouth. So it um, it just came very, very easily and naturally to us. So we used um, Luigi Bormioli C350 wine tasting glasses, which were the best wine tasting glasses we had at the time. We used them for all the beer tastings. Um, We tasted all the beer at room temperature, and anything that needed any revision, we chilled down and did it again. Um, A lot of the time, the food, you know, later in the day, we try with different sorts of foods. So we brought that element into it as well, although you don't want to overdo that because you know, quickly lose points of reference. So, those, um, that vocabulary and that organization of vocabulary and how to understand beer in an organolyptic sense, um, which is something that we both brought from one. And it, I think it works uh, and I think it's sensible. You don't have to be terribly technical. Um, you know, it's easy to criticize, you know, as, uh, how many, when was the last time you, you know, you heard someone in, at the fruit or saying, gosh, that strawberry just reminds me so much of Pinot Noir. So, you know, so wine and beer descriptors are, are unfortunately a
0: one-way street. <laughs> but at the same time, and, you know, I, when I do beer tastings, I'll always have a lot of fun at wine's expense, um, you know, for, for the expertise that the person, you know, w- w- we all taste differently. We all have our own, you know, genetic makeup and our sensory makeup that makes it a deeply personal experience. Um, and yet if you're around a table of 20 people and the, Wine expert up the end says you're going to get hints of pomegranate or, you know, hints of gooseberry and, you know, wet granite. People nod sagely. And yet when you turn to them and sort of say, when was the last time you ever had a gooseberry? And they'll say, I've never had one. And yet they're nodding sagely, such as agreeing that something yep. tastes like something that they've never tasted. Um yep. But then there's something just you know viscerally descriptive about, uh, and here's, here's I've been looking for it because I've used this over and over and over again as a descriptor myself. As I said, I've stolen liberally from you um, over the years, um, describing Redback Original. Those wheat and citrus smells also contain a touch of orange. Those old ones lying around in the fruit bowl, the flavour has the directness of classic wheat beers and stays fairly taut. There is something about that that you know. Immediately, you know what you're talking about. You know that orange that's just been in the fruit bowl a day too long. Um, it's not yet off. You can still eat it, but it just has that little bit of funk. And just in that five words, you've perfectly captured. You know that that's um, th- th- There's a magic around describing something so evocatively like that um, that I haven't really seen anyone else describe beer. Um, you know, in in, in 20 years.
1: Well, oh, thank you, Matt. That's very kind of you to say. Um,
0: as I, I said, it's going to be a fanboy um episode, but uh, it, it 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 that's something that's a description that's stayed with me for twenty odd years.
1: I'm pleased about that. I've achieved something at least. Um, certainly, I think anyone that is writing or um, or tasting beer and making notes shouldn't be afraid of divorcing themselves and their own experience from the things they taste. Um, and I guess that description of something that everyone knows or most people in this country drinking beer knows about, you know, a slightly older orange in the fruit bowl, it takes you there, it puts you in that place and it it makes it seem real. There's the there there. Um, There is, in that sense, um, a suggestion of some authenticity. Um, You're not so much being sold something or being told to believe something. It's not rote learning. It's understood as if it were your own discovery. That was... Greg Duncan Powell and I certainly had no talents in that regard as writers. We were just lucky enough as we collaborated to um, come to write about beer in that way. But um, as I said, the the underlying principle in retrospect, I guess, was a kind of democracy where anyone could drink wine and not have to worry about it too much. Um, And I guess the same with beer, Um, beer in its manufacture now and its stylistic range and It's targets of its myriad demographics, perhaps is taking it away from that more democratic approach. And I hope not.
0: There's a lot about beer, and, and, and that was actually one of the other things that stood out that was very influential, is that beer can't, because of the way that it's perceived in society, it can't carry a lot of pretense. Um whereas wine was very much built up upon theatre and you know, the, the, the decorking of the bottle and the presenting and uh, all of those sorts of things. It always had a little bit more ceremony that allowed it to be a little bit more reverential in style for, for, for description. Was that something you were mindful of? You know, when you were, but then, then again, I also felt that you approached wine in a similar way without uh, taking itself... You took the wine seriously without taking yourself seriously.
1: Oh yeah, and it was easy at the time, you know. Um, um just suited of um, the way we lived and our attitude towards life. Um, you know, it was um borderline anarchy. Um, you know, Greg and I just thought this is a wonderful opportunity, and you know, why live by the rules? Let's um, just have a bit of fun. I could crawl in tomorrow anyway. So that that's a great sense of freedom that gives you when um you can write in that way, particularly about you know such ridiculous topics as you know wine and beer. Um, there there will always be a divide between wine and between beer with regard to notions of, um, well, you could say with wine, notions of pomposity, but other people might say notions of uh, um, intellect. And with beer, which, you know, the notions there of something more simple or, you know, something more everyday, whereas it's is not anti-intellectual, but um, it, it doesn't have all that law around it that ne- necessitates um, the intellectual angle. Um, I've, I've never really satisfied myself as to why that's the case. Um, I, I think I, I will probably be able to reconcile science versus religion more sooner <laughs> than I can reconcile the difference between wine and beer as, as cultural um, touchstones that are so close yet so far away.
0: Okay, well, let me throw my thesis on that point at you for, for comment then because, you know, I, I love the story that, you know, Homo sapiens have been drinking wine since we were monkeys get tucking into over-fermented uh, fruit and getting drunk, you know, from the fruit that had fallen off the tree. Um, and, you know, there, there's... a study in anthropology that suggests that around 10 million years ago we became much more efficient at metabolizing alcohol and that gave a certain line of you know um, homo sapiens uh, or allowed us to evolve because we had a greater range of fruit fermentation made the fruit even more um, nutritious Um, that that gave us... Well, more, 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 more,
1: more calorific.
0: More calorific, if you can yes. get
1: Yeah, if you can get alcohol, you've got more calories. So when it's cold, mm-hmm. you live
0: longer. But also the fermentation is probiotic and there's a, there's a whole lot about it. But yeah. because you can only make fruit wine when you've got fresh fruit, it limited it to a very narrow window each year and it wasn't enough to stop us from living nomadic existence. We would go back to where the grapes or um, the apples were fruiting um, and temporarily stay there. Um but then, around twelve thousand years ago, when uh you know we'd evolved to the stage that we could accidentally turn the starches in grain into something fermented, which took a lot more you know we had to have mastered fire we had to have um you know there's there's a lot about that
1: yeah beer is harder to make
0: in, in in a lot of ways, but yeah. once we discovered it and were able to replicate it, we discovered that you you know whereas you can't store an apple for a year or a grape for a year you can store grain um, and you've got beer and bread 365 days it's a protection against the um it's a protection against you know periods of um, famine because you've got your your grain stores but yeah we have it
1: we have a very simple word for all of that egypt
0: Egypt, yes, no in Samaria, and uh, you know, the oldest recipes um, are recipes for beer. The oldest payslip was a payslip for you know, getting paid in beer, um, epic of Gilgamesh, and it was all you know, the earliest civilizations, and that allowed us to become sedentary civilizations as opposed to nomadic. And you know, when you tie those two thoughts together, wine always came from the place and the time that the uh, fruit came from. Whereas beer was something that was every day and as important as it was to civilization, anything that you have every day just becomes commonplace um, and so the the importance of beer is what makes you know the, the importance to civilization and society of beer is also the very thing that makes it so everyday and so pedestrian whereas wine you know then I think one of the greatest um, feasts ever um in history that was described in in the bible or certainly in ancient writings uh they talked about the 10,000 bulls that were slaughtered but um and you know all of the food but then one of the um how many crocks of beer was drunk but then one of the highlights of it was the wine that had come from the zagros mountains um because it was exotic and beer was something that you just made at the factory down the road um and and to me, that capsulates so much of, even now, uh, breweries were in industrial, cheap industrial land near the market, whereas wine had to come from the Barossa. Um, and whenever you visited, you had an emotional attachment to the misty mornings amongst the vines, because wine came from there, where beer comes from a factory down the road in the industrial estate. And, you know, they're the things that I think, that, that I've um theorized uh, drives our perception of the two different products do you have any thought about that
1: i think it's a very good theory matt um i like the way it's based on historical principles yeah there's a lot of good premises in it and a lot of things you can link together um you know the conclusion being that all well, the difference um, that someone in, in the decayed end of western civilization sees between beer and wine is um is explained by experience, by almost by DNA. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's very useful theory. <laughs> and um, if the, if we accept it, okay. Let's say I give you that the theory stands. If that's the case, that spell cannot be broken.
0: It, and nor should we try to. You know, we embrace embrace them. We we don't try and marry the the, the two churches. You know, they they are separate and. Uh, for, for all so they should.
1: So they should still be um, well advertised and very glossy, um, pompous wine magazines, and no beer. <laughs> and no beer literature at all. <laughs> no, well,
0: no, because it, uh, uh, a great expression um, that another writer uh, said: "The beer is fractally interesting. You know, you can just enjoy it, um, but the, you know, the, the deeper you get, you know, it's just these recurring patterns of interest." Um, And I I think that's another great way to describe it. You don't have to be educated to enjoy a cold one, but then a little bit of noise. In in fact, I think you actually uh, say something almost very similar um, in in, in your book. In a strange way, this sort of nasal gazing gazing allows and encourages quality evaluation. Um, And that in itself is rewarding.
1: To get, I think, to a certain sort of person. To a certain, again, yep yeah and um you know not everyone um not everyone's um intellectual or other pursuits extend you know to those area of areas of food and and beverages so um that's not a not truly applicable but certainly if um beer could you know somehow drag itself more towards the wine side i think it would it would improve things for beer but uh I think it's um, very much catch-up football.
0: Let's talk a little bit about wine because, uh, you know, the, the, the wine has... You know, we've seen organic wines, we've seen uh, orange wines, we've seen, the you know, low-intervention wines um, that seem to be almost a reaction against the industrialization of beer in the same way that craft beer on one level was a reaction against the you know, commodification and industrialization of beer. Is that a, you know, a reasonable um, observation?
1: Yeah, I think they're directly um, comparable. There's no doubt about that. Um, but as soon as the fire is lit, of course, um, no matter how pure the idea behind it, um, it becomes essentially a marketing tool. Um, and so we've seen that with um, craft beers, boutique beers that, you know, become dominated by bigger um, multinational companies that sees upon their marketing opportunity to maintain um, the share they have of the market. And it's been the same with um, whatever you want to call them, natural wines, um, orange wines, all those terms. Um, It's been the same thing. I think there might have been, you know, a small handful of, uh, no, it's too pejorative to call them well-meaning hippies, (laughs) but um, nice people nice people often with lovely manners and very good families um, who have been trained in the, um, the technology of wine making to the utmost degree that have decided, no, actually I want to make it this way and they're to be commended. And once again, I think that principle idea is then seized upon them. It's, it's become this uh, new thing. And I certainly know of wine makers that have been approached by their distributors um, and distributors in the wine um, business of powerful players um and those winemakers have been encouraged to make a natural wine because you know they need something to fill a slot um, and you know that's the that's when you know that you know you've been you've been taken over um, <laughs> um but you know it's a trickle down effect with that one because um, as new wine drinkers come along and they want their own thing you know we we want our thing you know when you when you become grown up and this happens to people at different ages some people can be grown-ups when they're 16 some people are not grown-ups until about 45 Um, but when you get there you want something that defines you know your experience and in cultural and social terms it can be everything from uh, food and wine through to uh, politics Um, so we want that one thing and I think um, these craft beers and these natural wines become to a certain demographic and a certain group of people in a very sophisticated and rich country like Australia, like their thing, and that's driven That's driven the market. And good luck to the people that make them and good luck to the people that drink uh, natural wines. Um, 99% of the natural wines I've tasted um, are wrong. They're faulty. And that's all I can say. To like, say anything else is to lie. <laughs> It reminds me of one of the strangest, weirdest marketing pushes I ever saw in beer, and this is about 20 years ago as well, when the people at the big company decided um, they'd get the wine magazine to help them make Crown Lager this super premium, luxury, sellerable bottle of wine that came mm-hmm. in a wooden box and cost $250. Uh, it was $85. And uh,
0: yes, uh, and it was the 2010 uh, vintage of the Crown Ambassador when they first put it into uh, reused oak. Yes.
1: Yeah, and it was faulty because the beer was full of Britannomyces, which is a yeast spoilage you get from old oak. Mm. And a winemaker would chuck that wine all down the drain straight away. But the brewers didn't know it was Britannomyces, I assume, no, well, they, and That they was, released
0: they it. They weren't trained to identify Britannomyces in beer, but then you've got this whole industry that's putting Brett in beers now and barrel-aging them um, in the Belgian style, um, which it, it, it's such a great example of is it a fault or is it a feature? Um, well,
1: when it's, when it's at really low levels... And, you know, some people won't detect it. You know, it's a bit like adding one little sliver of anchovy into a big pot of Bolognese sauce. Like if it's not there, you'd notice it, but if it's there, you don't. Like So it's one of those sorts of things. Um, so low-level um, spoilage and faults. Um, acid aldehyde, that nail polish smell um, that you have in someone's um, um, dry sherry is a great example of it. It's basically nail polish remover. Some people love that. Um, so that's technically a fault, but when you can use it in a in a more controlled way. But of course, you know when it really dominates and ruins the the pleasure of smelling and drinking the beverage, then you've got a problem. And that's my problem with um with a lot of natural wines that they um they they become these monstrous caricatures of what they should be.
0: I see that, and it's a very pejorative way of describing it. But I see that happening in a lot of beers, where the the, the, the object of the brewer is to make the beer so obvious in what you should be tasting that you know that there's no salt, subtlety and nuance, so everybody gets it, um, and it's a big punch in the face with the most obvious flavour. And I, I don't know whether it's the same for. Um, you know, orange wines or, you know, natural wines, whether, well, these are so natural that you can actually taste the naturalness because... And and so the fault does become... All right, uh, well, look, uh, you
1: you forced my hand here. I will make... (laughs) No, I'm sorry, I I have to. I will make a moral and ethical judgment on this. Um, What's wrong about it is that... And surely anyone will agree to these terms. What's wrong about that exaggeration... It is designed to appeal um, to the most naive mind. And so you could argue it's it's another type of entrapment that alcoholic beverage companies use to attract younger drinkers. So why not let people explore well-made beer and well-made wine and some of the spirits, I'm not saying all of them, some of the spirits that are not obvious, that are not, you know, mind-burning moments um to the point where you can say oh maybe yeah maybe no you know i might try it again i'll have another go you know i like a glass of it um why not do it that way but the the business systems don't stack up that way so it doesn't happen and i think that's what's wrong about these these grotesque and exaggerated flavor styles um the big you know you're beating people over the head and then eventually they conform, and they that's what they drink you know (laughs) Um, I'm a twoies man Yes, you become a parochial beer drinker
0: yep there you go Uh, now the the, the one other question I wanted to ask because it was something else that I I, I personally took very strongly from your writing was a very askance view of marketing Um, there was a a, a significant serious distrust in all things marketing and anything PR related Um, where did that come from
1: oh it comes very naturally to me um I studied history, um, and for two years I studied the French Revolution. And in many areas, I don't think much of what we live amongst has changed wildly. Um, so you always have to have your antennae up, and you have to make sure that you're not believing things, but you're questioning them. First principle basis: you know, you've, you've learned a new piece of information, test it. Um, you've got an opinion. Um, before you tell anyone, what's the counter-argument going to be? Ask yourself that question. So marketing, um, questioning that just becomes uh, pretty straightforward, um, particularly when you see a lot of the marketing we have around us today. Um, the most puerile, and, and strangely enough, I think in, in some ways, the, the most strangely innocent is, is probably from um, some of the grog companies. Um, they're going more for lifestyle and, and, you know, environment themes with their their marketing, Um, but, you know, in in other areas of marketing, in other areas of endeavour, I think it's slightly
0: more evil. There you go. I think I, I I think that's as good a place I, I I could chat about this for hours. Hopefully lockdowns will end uh, and and we can continue this uh, conversation privately over a beer. But uh, Ben Canada, thank you very much uh, for this conversation about beer and wine and uh, beer writing, and uh, most importantly, thank you for uh, slabs, stubbies and six packs. Do you know I I stocked up? I think I've got about fifteen copies uh, that I found remaindered over the years. Do you know if it's still available or?
1: Oh no I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think so I think um, no the whatever's left would have been popped by now
0: do you have anything that we can plug uh, these days
1: um, no not at all but if anyone um, has anything serious to say um, either in favour or to counter my points of view feel free to visit my website and um, send me an email I'll be more than happy to discuss it with you
0: wonderful well Ben Canada, thank you very much for this uh, conversation about beer and I hopefully we'll be able to have a beer very soon it was very nice of you to think of me Matt and thank you for the chat and that was Ben Canada. Now, if you haven't seen the book, I do note that there are a couple of editions available for sale on eBay at I think $11, which is half the cover price of the book. So if you'd like a little bit of beery nostalgia in your library, jump online and see if you can find one. It's a bit of a hoot going back and looking at the way beer was just 20 years ago. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. We thank Cryomalt for sponsoring this episode of Beer as a Conversation. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search for Radio Brews News and use the password soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sending us an email. Let us know what you think. Let us know who you would like us to speak to and why. You can sponsor the show, hand over a bit of your hard-earned for this free stuff you get every week. Or you can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service and help other people find us. They're just easy little things you can do to help us out. But most importantly... Thank you for listening, and we look forward to joining you again for another Beery Conversation next week.